This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Cooking with Grief, the comedy podcast where we share weird, wonderful facts about the world around us. And anything from history to art to science and to funny articles about Uranus. Astronomical or otherwise. As ever, I'm joined with my co-host from another mother and father, because we are completely unrelated, but we do both share the same first name, which has no bearing on familiar ties. It's Chris. Hello. What a <laughs> unnecessarily complicated introduction. And that's coming from me. <laughs> it's coming from a man who once made the intro a uh, multiple choice phone menu. Automation's coming for us all. Indeed. So besides that, how are you? I'm good. I'm full. Very full. Full of what? Vim, vigour <laughs> and eggs. <laughs> Back on the strongman diet, that imply that yep. you've got somewhere to lift weights now? Because my gym's still closed, so... I'm just I'm working out from home, but also it's more during lockdown. I put on so much weight from eating ice cream um, and crisps. Uh, and while pl- pleasurable, the benefit of the strongman diet, it, I'm limited to like eggs, chicken, beef, and spinach and broccoli, and that's pretty much it. So I had ten eggs for my breakfast, and I'm feeling full but ready to deliver some great <laughs> content. As ever, Gaston looks on in amazement. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? What are you full of? I am well, and I am full of the milk of human kindness. I'm joking that the, I can't. I, nah, I'm not. Um, but I, I'm, I'm okay, I guess. Um, <laughs> full of dreams and hopes and whimsy. Anyway, with the <laughs> with the obligatory pleasantries out the way. <laughs> I mean, we. I assume this is how normal people have conversations. We we don't know. We <laughs> we're still yeah, learning. Good morning. What what are you what are you full of? <laughs> um, <laughs> cornflakes. <laughs> yeah, dear listener, what are you full of? Let us know in the comments. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I am full of. I'm full of uh, bloody hay fever. I'm not. So yeah, if I sound bunged up or start sneezing or anything like that, it's because the plants are attacking me. I hate summer. I love summer, but I hate summer. Just, just plants. <laughs> Why did they do this to me? We're three minutes in. At some point, are we going to tell them what the podcast's about? Yes, well, I was going to do it now. Um, now that the, once again, the obligatory uh, introduction's out of the way, the uh, way the podcast works, uh, any new listeners have stumbled upon us, is we've both got two topics about something weird, something interesting, Something obscure that the other person hasn't heard before, and then we surprise both each other and, by extension, you, the audience, with our knowledge and, well, I say knowledge, our initial, like, offering of information and then little follow-up wisdom. Our reading comprehension uh, comprehension of a uh, clickbaity headline followed by zero academic research to follow it up. Exactly. And without further ado, over to you, Chris, for your first topic. Okay, so for my first topic, I'll start off with a question. Chris, what is, in your own words, Stockholm Syndrome? Oh, I know this one. When you um, fall in love with your captors. 
Good answer. Would you be interested and eager for more information if I told you that Stockholm Syndrome was originally a completely fabricated diagnosis? What? So this comes... Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me. <laughs> okay, I, I will. I forgot to answer your question. <laughs> so this comes from Jess Hill's book, See What You Made Me Do, about domestic violence. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome is, quote, a myth invented to discredit women victims of violence by a psychiatrist with an obvious conflict of interest interest, whose first instinct was to silence a woman questioning his authority. What I mean by that is the psychiatrist who invented Stockholm Syndrome, Niels Bergerot, never actually spoke to the woman he based it on. Oh, I mean, that's spurious research even for us. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah, it makes us look good. So it came about, so the history of it is that it was during a bank heist um, that inspired the syndrome. And Bergerot was the psychiatrist leading the police response. I he was the authority that uh, Kristen Enmar, who was the first woman diagnosed with Stockholm syndrome, so distrusted. In 1973, she was working at a bank when Jan Olsen, who was the robber, came in and took her and three other clerks hostage. And there was a stalemate for the next six days. Now, like the Swedish police hadn't really seen this sort of activity before in the 70s, and it became a big media event. It's essentially a, a Hollywood blockbuster come to the sleepy streets of, of Sweden. Some nice alliteration there, but carry on. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Completely intentional, of course. Um, <laughs> and because they hadn't seen this thing before, there was no training in like hostage negotiation, and the sort of whole process was pretty bungled from the start. I mean, as far as I'm aware, like the correct hostage negotiation technique is for a... Uh, grizzled detective in a trench coat to walk up with a loud hailer and ask if uh, the guy wants some pizza. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we know that now, but in the, the uh, naive <laughs> days of the 70s, it was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> that goes all our Swedish listeners. <laughs> By one Swedish listener. <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us for 45 episodes of nonsense <laughs> until we turn the gun on you. <laughs> So uh, early on in this bungled uh, operation, they misidentified Olsen, um, the, who was the shooter, and they thought they'd found his younger brother and sent in what was essentially a random teenager, like teenage boy, in to negotiate, accompanied with the psychiatrist Niels Bergeron. That didn't work because he was a complete stranger. And when that failed... Did... Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, who approached who in this situation? brother? Yeah, I'll do I don't think the kid, like, like volunteered, like, oh, I'm his brother. All right, okay, right, you go in. Can I Can I have a bulletproof vest? <laughs> nah. I, I don't know who approached it. I, I'm guessing that they, they looked up, like, on the bad guy database, got the wrong guy, tracked down his brother, and were like, can you go in? And he's like, oh, I've got nothing better to do apart from eating herring. Sorry, Swedish listener. Uh, So when that failed, the police and the robbers uh, started trading fire. Meanwhile, one of the other bank robbers, a guy called Clark Olofsson, was trying to reassure the hostages. And Kristen Enmark, who was the the woman involved, later recalled that, quote, "Uh, Clark comforted me. He held my hand. He said, I want to see that Jan doesn't hurt you. I can't say that I felt safe because that's not the word, but I chose to believe him. I thought that someone cared about me. This is in contrast to the police. Bergerot refused to speak to her or any of the other hostages, and they managed to get a radio in, and she did a, a radio interview from inside the bank, and Enmark said, the police are playing with our lives, and they don't want to talk to me. Who is the one who will die if anything happens? It was such a big media event that she got to phone the Prime Minister, Olaf Palmer, because I guess that's just a thing that happens 
in 1970s Sweden. Bobby's watching on TV. And she told him, I fully tr- trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They have not done a thing to me. On the contrary, they have been very nice. What I'm scared of is is that the police will attack and cause her to die. She was told that they couldn't give in to the demands of the criminals and that if she died, at least she'll have died at her post, which is pretty appalling thing to say to someone in a, in a situation. I know, when you say, like, died at her post, it's usually like, you know, like a soldier defending... You know, like his vital, like supply line. Yeah, like he died at <laughs> died at his post value, not like <laughs> died at his desk. Yeah, went, went to work <laughs> and just happened to get caught up in this thing. So she told him that she didn't want to be a dead hero, which I think is fair enough. Mm-hmm. It ended after six and a half days when the police tear gassed the bank and then captured everyone, and then paraded the captured robbers up and down the street for the media and the crowd that had gathered. And because there was so so much media attention outside, they wanted to bring Enmark and the other hostages out on stretchers to sort of play up the cameras, and she refused, saying that she, she walked into the bank and intended to walk out as well. So that's the sort of story of the actual bank robbery itself. Now, the sort of Stockholm Syndrome bit, comes after. So in the subsequent media frenzy, she criticised the police response and curled out Bergerot personally. He dismissed her comments as a product of uh, Norman Strong uh, Syndrome, later renamed as Stockholm Syndrome. He explained how her irrational fear of the police was called by emotional and sexual attachment she had with her captors. And this diagnosis was completely improvised on the spot, but it suited the media sort of a narrative and mm-hmm. one, and one newspaper quoted Enmark as not appearing as traumatized as she ought to be so they sort of bought this <laughs> media narrative how dare you be dealing with this well yeah you know what i mean like and later she said yes i was afraid of the police but what is so strange about that is it strange that one is afraid of those who are all, all around in parks on roofs behind corners in armoured vests, helmets and weapons, ready to shoot. So he just, the psychiatrist just made up this definition and then it sort of formed the model for, well, ever since. So in 2008, a review of the scientific literature around Stockholm Syndrome found that the vast majority of its cited cases were made up by the media, not by psychiatrists. So it's almost like it's it sort of got into popular culture as a reference point, but there's no, there are very few cases of it actually being true in in real life. And the problem with that is that these days it mostly refers to domestic violence cases. And the problem with the oh, initial yeah. diagnosis is that it became the model for what was then called battered woman syndrome or learned helplessness. Stockholm syndrome sounds a lot nicer than that. It's almost used as a, an excuse, you know what I mean? Like, it sort of discredits victim of violence, so it addresses the wrong person in the relationship. So it's like, if, like, a bloke... And, and I know it isn't exactly the most comedic topic we've ever done for a comedy podcast, but I thought it was interesting that... Well, it's interesting enough to not be funny, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. That, like, if there's, like, a, a bloke domestically abusing his, his partner, it's weird that we, as a society, we put the emphasis on, like, oh, why didn't she leave him? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she must be like too emotionally attached to him and it's like it's just such a weird angle yeah. angle to take to it but it just i just thought it was interesting that this thing that you know most people have heard of stockholm syndrome most people know what it means but the, literally the first case of it is like the the you know kristen enmark has this really traumatic experience but finds fault with the police and the psychiatrist just goes well you know it, it, she must have you know 
what did she fancy her captives? Uh, and all the media go, yeah, that do- that does seem more likely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you like yeah. like him? And it's like, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. There is a thing though, like when people are in like abusive relationships, or I don't know if it also applies to the hostage situation. But there is a thing where like if you're shit to somebody and then show them a small act of kindness, people will like fixate on the kindness, you know, yeah. and use that to justify the rest of it. Like it is definitely a. I mean, obviously, like, the Stockholm thing sounds made up and stuff, but there is definitely, like, some psychological thing there where, like, if you're, you know, you can be a dick to somebody 90% of the time, but you throw them 10% of the time, you'd, like, do something nice. People will grab onto that. There's also a psychological phenomenon called the halo effect, where good first impressions can far outweigh, you know, the actual benefits of those at first impressions. So, like, if someone gets in a relationship and everything's great at the beginning you get that halo effect where they can do no wrong, then then things go sour. Then uh, we're more willing to forgive people for later transactions if they can, you know, if the, those first impressions were really happy memories. I mean, it's the same at work. Like, it, the first, like, few months or whatever, you're an absolute grafter and you put in the, the shift and then slack off. People are more willing to forgive it than if you, like, for whatever reason, have a rough few weeks and then you sort of get that, target of oh they're not a hard worker or they're hard to work with or whatever it is slightly related fact for some reason in the film die hard little known obscure indie flick <laughs> um really shouting out the little where, man yeah, there's this bit where because um, obviously it's about a hostage situation and there's a bit where the like news crew are like the hostages may be suffer- might be suffering from Helsinki syndrome which is when you fall in love with your captors and then they're like yes Helsinki which is in Sweden and I don't know if it's like a mistakenly part of the writers or because obviously Helsinki's Finland and yeah. it's not called Helsinki syndrome. <laughs> like it's harder to make that up accidentally. Like it'd be easier to say, ah, Hel- Stockholm, which is in Finland accidentally than it would be to find a different, <laughs> a different Scandinavian city and make up a syndrome. And the character saying it is a bit of a knobhead. So it could be like a, this guy's a, this guy's an idiot. Or, or maybe they meant like, of course, the you know the hostages may be suffering from Helsinki syndrome. They've invented Molotov cocktails and they're attacking the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's all. That's exhausted my knowledge of Stockholm syndrome. Anyway, so that's the end of my first topic, Chris. What have you got for your first one? Okay, well, I have a question for you. How long do you reckon you could survive in a boat in the ocean with no supplies, no steering or anything like you know, literally just essentially shipwrecked? Mentally, not not long at all. It's out in the sun and I don't do well in that. And I can't imagine me fashioning some sort of floating palm tree shade to stay cool in. In terms of just sort of body mass, I've got a lot to keep me going. I've got plenty of um, blubber reserves, but mentally, not very long at all. <laughs> mentally, a couple of hours. <laughs> I've taken 40 minutes. Take me ocean. My phone yeah. would still have charge on it where I go, ah, oh, sod it. This is just too much. You're not even out my harbour yet. <laughs> I, I, can see, I can see land and I'm like, well, I'm going to swim. 3G, not 4. Fuck much. this. Dead. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be similar. But a guy in 2012, a man survived for 14 months, basically, on a little boat. I was going to say on his own. He didn't start off on his own, but eventually he was the sole survivor. Oh. Because <laughs> this week we're cooking with grief, we're really like going to focus on the grief. And, um, and depending on what happened to um, his uh, boat partner, maybe cooking as well? Uh, surprisingly not. Oh. 
I don't know why I'm disappointed Which by I that. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought I thought he would have. I mean, part of, I mean, I'm not going to say this guy is not telling the truth because he probably is, but like, I wouldn't begrudge him if it turned out that he did eat his fellow sailor, but apparently he didn't. So this is a story of Salvador Alvarenga. I don't speak Spanish, so apologies if I'm butchering that pronunciation. But he's a man from El Salvador, but he moved to Mexico and then. He was a fisherman. One day, obviously, being a fisherman, went out fishing and he had a little boat. By the sounds of it, it was literally one of those ones, you know, that's little more than... It's got, like, a motor on it. Like a dinghy. That was it. Not, yeah, not quite a dinghy. It was, like, wooden boat, but, you know, like, the open-topped ones. It didn't have any, like... You know, like, it didn't have a wheelhouse or anything like that. Like, you weren't supposed to be going... There was no indoors, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. Like, there was... It was one that you go out for a few hours and come back. Life of Pi style without the tiger. Yeah, basically. It was not meant for like going out for more than a day. Designed to, you go out to the sea, you do your fishing, you come back in the evening. Like, that's it. So, Salvador was going, and then apparently what happened was he was supposed to go with his normal fishing partner, but then his usual like partner bailed at the last minute. So, he took over um, this guy called Cordoba who was the guy from the area, Mm -hmm. who he didn't actually know, but he needed somebody else to go, and this guy was willing to work. So took him out in his boat. Apparently they'd never even spoken before, but, you know, this guy who bailed was like, oh, my friend will work instead. So off they go, off the uh, west coast of Mexico, out into the Pacific Ocean. They're out to sea. A storm came out, and it completely battered the boat. So they were basically trying to, like, they're spending all the time trying to, like, steady the uh, boat, essentially. Because, like I say, it's one of those ones with... It's not exactly like a, um ocean liner or something. Like, it's literally, like, little tiny thing getting battered by waves. So they're literally there with buckets trying to, like, bail all the water out. And then all the things they had that they didn't need, they ended up having to throw off, like, you know, to try and, like, keep balanced. Mm-hmm. So they threw out the catch they made. They threw out like all their like fishing equipment stuff like that because it was like all just too unsteady and sinking them basically. But they did have a GPS device and they did have a radio. So like I say like they weren't unprepared, mm-hmm. but it turns out they were incredibly unlucky. Yeah, they're trying to get back to shore through this storm, and then the motor breaks. So now they've got no way of steering. But it's all right because they've still got the GPS and they've still got the radio. Then the GPS stopped working. So they couldn't tell anybody where they were. And obviously they were like out of sight of shore at this point. So, you know, it's... <laughs> Look for a landmark. Um, it's all blue. <laughs> Wavy. He reckons they were about two hours from land at this point. But he radioed his uh, boss and he was like... You know, and he said like, oh, we're, we're stuck. The motor's not working and we're out in the storm. And I was like, don't worry. Lay an anchor. What's your GPS? And that's when they get the GPS out and the GPS is now broken. So they're like, uh, can't really tell you. And then that was it. His last words over the radio were, come now, I'm really getting fucked out here. And then the radio died. <laughs> Strong last words to her. Uh, no, exactly. If you're going to go out, like, he went out without like any sort of pretense. Yeah. So then they were essentially on their own. These two guys in a boat. The storm was still going. The storm lasted for a good few days. And so they spent the entire time, like, trying to bail out this boat for like a good few days and then they tried to make a we call it like a sea anchor because they didn't have like an actual anchor but it's like uh, you string a load of boys from the back of the boat and it sort of like sort of works as sort of as a counterbalance you know so Mm -hmm. things the waves don't 
mess you about as much. Yeah, so that was it. So now they were just floating, essentially at the mercy of the currents now. They literally, they had like a refrigerator icebox thing, which they used to keep the catch in, and like they'd emptied that, and then they they huddled in there, like that became the sort of their room, yeah. their indoors bit. And apparently they were freezing because they were obviously they were covered in water in this storm. So, I mean, you know you have to be cold when like the icebox is the place where you go to warm up. Like, <laughs> yeah. And um, even though they're fishermen, they'd thrown away all like the bait and the hooks and everything, you know, as part of this and their previous catch. So to survive, they were like catching fish with their hands. Bear in mind, this is shark infested water, but they literally like lean over the boat, just grab fish with their hands. And they also were able to catch turtles. The criminals of the sea. I take it they can't cook anything, so they're eating raw fish. Raw fish. They're <laughs> drying the fish in the sun. And raw turtles? What are they doing with the... Raw turtles, drinking the turtle blood to um, for water. And bear in mind, we're only uh, two weeks in. Eventually it started to rain again, and more gently this time. They, you know, they collected rainwater. They're floating further and further away, literally just into the Pacific Ocean. They're just heading pretty much on a straight line away from the shore. But weirdly, there was apparently quite a lot of rubbish in the ocean, and some of it actually had food that you wouldn't eat in normal circumstances, but they were. But better than fingernails like, and turtle blood. Yeah, exactly. Rancid milk or stuff, they were like, oh, that'll do. I don't know, I always just assumed turtles would be quite hard to catch. I don't think they'd swim right up to you like to hand-grabbing range, but... Even birds, they'd manage to get away. I guess birds come for the fish and then you just grab the bird or something. After two months, Alvarenga was alright, relatively speaking. But this uh, Cordoba, who was younger and stuff, he wasn't doing very well mentally. And so he'd sort of like started refusing to eat. Sort of broken. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he uh, died, for obvious reasons. Just of starvation. Yeah, essentially. Starvation, sickness lost the will to live as well, probably yeah. didn't help, you know, like, just basically give it up. Yeah. Uh, because the other guy had also gone a bit mad by this point. He just props him up and just kept having conversations with him for about a week, even though he was dead. And then realised, hang on, this is crazy. And uh, threw him overboard. So apparently he didn't eat him. So, you know, I guess that's good. So he's only two months in. And so now for another year, he literally just floated through. And, like, apparently sometimes he'd see, like, um, uh, cargo ships and stuff and he'd try waving and stuff at them, but they're just... Because it's such a small boat, there's, like, nothing even sticking up out, like, being impossible to spot, like, unless you bounced into it, like, there's no way, like, anyone would see it. So, that was it. So there was nothing... He reckons he saw 20 ships, but none of them ever, ever saw him. The first time you see a ship, you must think you're saved, and then that heartbreaking realisation mm-hmm. when they disappear off the horizon... And then apparently he just sort of retreated into his mind to sort of keep himself... It's weird. To keep himself sane, he basically went crazy. Yeah. He said he made up, like, an alternate world that he lived in. So he'd walk up and down this little boat, but he'd, like, in his head, he'd be pretending he's going, like, on a big walk around, like, the park or, you know, like, up and down the beach or something like that. And, like, every time he ate, he'd pretend, like, in his head that he was having, like, an amazing meal and stuff like that. And apparently also... um experience the most delicious sex because you gotta have something to keep you going not to make it crass but what did he use to simulate that I, it doesn't go into detail okay I'm, I'm guessing a fish there's a reason why all sailors were apparently uh, enticed by mermaids and stuff. <laughs> grossed out by the top half yeah <laughs> so he um, literally did that 
and then eventually open you know like one day you just saw like an island on the horizon and he was drifting towards it uh, at first he thought he was hallucinating it and then he was like nope this seems to be real so he actually got like um rather than waiting to wash up like in case he didn't he jumped out of the boat when he thought he was close enough and swam like the rest fuck <laughs> not like massively far but like he was literally like i'm getting to this but like i'm getting to land one way or another yeah and, like no he had no idea it was just like a little island yeah, like literally it says here, like he, you know, because he saw it and he was getting close and then he started panicking that he would, you know, blow up, you know, the current would take him further away. And then he just lay in the sand and then apparently literally just crawled along the beach into like, you know, like up the beach and into the forest or whatever. And then it turns out he'd washed up on Tile Islet, which is part of the southern tip of the Marshall Islands. Oh, right. And it's one of the most... <laughs> remote spots on earth but it was inhabited good he was walking around and then there was a couple living there emmy liber libokmeto and russell lackadrick so they saw this random guy just basically stumbling through being like a delirious starving guy and they were just like what the hell is going on here yeah and they didn't speak spanish uh, i don't know what they speak in the marshall islands but he didn't speak that but eventually they were like they took him in their boat to one of the bigger islands where there was actually like a little village and town or whatever. And then they were able to get him a doctor with that. And then eventually, yeah, that was it. He was saved. Any like long term physical damage? I'm, I'm sure mentally. Well, he had um, like liver poisoning or uh, kidney issues because he'd essentially had a very salty diet. Oh, and they think yeah, he might have had like parasites and stuff because again, all raw fish yeah and then mentally he was um yeah he was terrified of the water and wouldn't sleep couldn't sleep and stuff like that did he move back to mexico or he moved back to el salvador his original thing mm -hmm. but then he did go back to mexico because he promised to tell the other guy's mum what had happened oh that's so nice he did that. Heartbreaking. yeah um heartbreaking but yeah but apparently he just really didn't want the um tension and stuff so apparently he put a post-it note in his hospital room saying like please go away like yeah stop asking because obviously like the world's media descended on this because they're like because at first people were skeptical how has anybody survived that long and stuff like that? But, like, he was reported missing, like, a year and a bit before. So they were like, holy shit, like, this is the guy. Yeah. We realised it was true. And then everyone wanted to know, but, yeah. But we're only likely to get a sort of 127 hours style film out of it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just cast away. Slash life of pie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seen it. Been done. So, yeah. So when's that tale? Okay. And so with that tale out of the way, what's your second topic? Okay, well, I'm going to move back to familiar ground and our uh, old touchstone, ancient Greece. Oh, yes, another one. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another one to the pyre. I'll ask you a question. What's Plato's real name? Plato? That's what I thought. No one knows his <laughs> real, real name. Plato is his wrestling name, and that's the name that has survived the centuries. Oh, so it'd be like in 2,000 years if everyone refers to The Rock. <laughs> And everyone's like, yeah. what, was, what was his real name? And everyone's like, no idea. The name Dwayne Johnson will be lost to time and everyone will refer to President of the United States, The Rock. Yeah, well, not only that, you know, not only The Rock, but also one of the 21st century's greatest thinkers, philosophers, teachers, 
but also physically imposing. So Plato just me- uh, means broad in Greek. Oh. He was an Olympic gold wrestler as well as a, a thinker type. <laughs> Even in Aristotle's notes, who was obviously a-, a student of Plato, apparently he'd do this thing that if he was losing a debate in front of a crowd, he'd just, <laughs> he'd just get up and start flexing and everyone would cheer. <laughs> <laughs> Such a dick move. <laughs> and he'd sort of just win the debate. Be like, like, oh, well, no, oh, I really want to have President The Rock because it's the yeah. best in the debates, and it's just like, so, Mr. The Rock, what's your uh, taxation policy? <laughs> Rips his shirt off and just lets him and goes, goes yes. Oh, oh, let's be honest, he'd already be in a sleeveless suit. Oh, yeah, that's you know, true. Just sort of flexing, you know, like from the West Coast. Oh, right over to the east coast, yeah, just over there. Oh, this, oh, this, this massive bicep, boom! That is electoral dynamite. So yeah, so he, he used to literally just say if I don't know, like you know, his debate, like a, a rival w- was winning, he'd just start flexing <laughs> in, in a kai tone. So really, are we even sure that Plato was that smart? <laughs> he just well, beat all the well, nerds oh, into submission and everyone just had to be like oh shit everyone just had to write about how clever Plato was he actually didn't know anything but beat up all the other nerds and took their homework well, well we've discussed before how he was against written language because it diluted the purity of speech I'm starting to think he couldn't write and <laughs> <laughs> he was just like you say a jock who was just like right you write it then right uh, okay okay steve don't call me steve call me broad, broad call me yeah. all right and then and then hench the hench philosopher argued in favor of the republic while deadlifting an ox <laughs> just puts everything in perspective well yeah here's the thing right we think of i don't know the nobility of Athenian democracy, the sort of the grand ideas that lay the foundation for, you know, sort of Western civilization. And it's less like sort of dignified, you know, let's admit men, you know, in like crowded, you know, uh, marketplace and forums, you know, like bringing enlightenment to the common people. It's basically WWE. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's walking out, he's, <laughs> he's you know, flexing and lunging and talking smack about his, his sort of debating rival. It's like, it's far less like high-minded than I originally thought. <laughs> That's it. I feel like a lot of these things get like ancient Greece and Rome I always get sort of like, whitewashed into a sort of I mean also kind of literally because apparently like all the statues and stuff were actually like painted so you know like it's always like in our heads really all, gaudy colourful as well yeah and in our heads it's always sort of like these sit like Athens and Rome and stuff where all these like cities of just glitter and white marble not that one really they would have been painted like pink and red and blue and all these like you say all these crazy colours yeah and then again like we're sort of like oh yes and they were very dignified and it was the uh, fa- the foundations of civilization and the world and then yeah back in then like it's like we're saying like about Caesar when we talk about Rome you know like when everyone in debating him people would just be like yeah well I heard you got bummed like you know like in the heads it's Jesus like Jesus takes like, it all the from the yeah that was it and it was like <laughs> like in the heads it's like oh yeah well it would have been dignified and they would have just used the foundations of modern thought and all this and then like yeah it's actually just a bunch of jocks yelling at each other and being like wait come on you know not to make it political he says which is what people say before they make it political mm-hmm. but you know how a, a certain aspect of the sort of media on the right almost like fetishize ancient Greece, mm-hmm. particularly about Sparta, 
But also, these are, he's, you know, like, ancient Greeks, Greeks loved, like, debauchery and, mm-hmm. like, poetry and plays, like, stuffed particularly, you know, associated with, like, a sort of liberal sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's like all the Greeks that have survived through history are just basically sort of, I don't know, sort of drunken sort of, sort of liberal ar- aristocracy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like Plato, like known for like just getting drunk at parties and stuff like yeah. that. You know, they call them forums, but it's basically just famous people talking about, well, they're just, you know, shagging and cover themselves in oil. And, and then Aristotle comes out the next day wearing Plato's Olympic medals and you know everyone knows what what's gone on it always gets an air dignity that probably would not have been warranted like that they would have actively laughed at yeah you know especially like in contrast like the greek the romans get a bit of a like uh well they were like the greeks but sort of like rough and violent and stuff like that and then like the ancient greeks were like we're gonna have boxing but we're gonna have gloves with like leather gloves with metal studs on them so it really breaks people's jaws (laughs) (laughs) everyone's like ah yes dignity (laughs) it's like welcome to the olympic games we've got boxing with metal like with knuckle dust we've we've got chariot racing where people will get crushed we've got you know We've got wrestling where it is completely, you know, permissible to drop people on their necks and yeah. the crowd will love it. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just, they say the dignity it gets afforded seems a bit unwarranted for what it would have been like. Yeah, so it's it's less like um, togas and high-minded speeches. It's, it is just Plato in SmackDown, you know, yeah. on a tag team match against, you know, whoever. We, at Cooking With Grief, have shed new light onto how <laughs> Plato's, like... Mental prowess. <laughs> you know, I think there's an avenue to dig down here and to find out was Plato as smart as people think, or did he just beat up other people and take their homework? <laughs> <laughs> like Plato's broad, there's probably some like ancient Greek whose nickname was Skinny, who actually came up with all of these things, and then every time they'd be like, Yeah, Power of the Cave, eh? Hmm, shame <laughs> if, uh, shame if somebody beat you up and took that. It's like, oh, fine, here you go. Have it. Just don't break my nose again. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Play-Doh! Oh, man. I I love that. Right, well, I think on that very scientific and academic note, let's hear your final topic to round us out. All right, Chris, so I'm going to ask you a question. What do you know about Schrodinger's cat? I know a, a bit and nothing at all at the same time. Nicely done. For any listeners who aren't aware, and I am merely an engineer, so I am a studier of physics, a slower, younger brother. (laughs) So I apologise for anybody if I butcher this explanation. But it's basically a a thought experiment, which was, you know, if you've got a cat in a box, I don't know why, it made it really overly complicated. Like, in the original, like, thought experiment, it's like, there's a cat in a box, and there's a radioactive isotope in a vase that will decay at a certain it's like just say there's a cat in a box with a piece of poison in it that'll, that'll do so yeah cat in a box with some poison if the cat's eating the poison the cat's dead if the cat hasn't eaten the poison the cat's alive but because you can't tell until you open the box you've got to assume that the cat is both alive and dead at the same time and what does that thought experiment explain something to do with quantum physics I can't really fully explain what because I don't understand quantum physics, but it's essentially like particles and stuff like that that can be in two states. Weirdly enough, the guy who came up with this, uh, Schrodinger, was using this to ridicule what a ridiculous idea it was because he was like, cats can't be alive and dead at the same time. Because it's this idea that um, there are certain particles and stuff that 
until you look at them, they could be one thing or they could be something else. And you can't know until you look at them. Because they act differently depending on whether or not they're observed. Yeah, which I've never fully understood how that works. But yeah, like observing them can change. So it was really weird. It's like light works as a particle. I don't think this is explained by the Schrodinger's cat thing, but light works as a particle or a wave depending on what you're doing to it. It's both at the same time. Uh, you can do experiments that prove that it's a particle, you can do experiments that prove it's a wave. And you can do the same article and tweak it slightly and it changes from a wave to a particle. It's mad. My side bonus fact. You know how, both on this podcast and in real life, I'll take any opportunity to, to wax lyrical about my favourite band, Eels. Yes. Eels is essentially the creative output of one guy called Mark Everett whose dad, Hugh Everett III, was a physicist who first posed the quantum world's theory based on this very idea that that if particles acting in different ways and again don't quote me on this then every decision we make has a as a quantum counter reaction where something else happens okay well so it's like a mirror universe yeah so so like that he, he invented the the multi-universe hmm. theory yeah. and as a consequence had very little time for bringing up a son who would go on to make my favorite album of all time oh well, there we go Cause and effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so now what they've found is that not only is the cat alive and dead at the same time, scientists have found that the cat can start dying and then you can bring it back to life, metaphorically. Fine line between quantum mechanics and necromancy. Yes. Which side are we on? I want to say we're on the side of necromancy, but also okay, physics. Yeah, so the idea is now that they found that this um, jump between quantum states, which was thought to be instantaneous, like you look at it and then it's going to either be one thing or another, so you're going to be alive or dead straight away. They found it actually happens very fast, but not instantaneously, which means that you could open the box and see the cat dying, to go back to the metaphor, but you could see that it's about to die, and then you can reverse the transition midway through, so you can, uh, yeah, effectively stop the jump as well. By closing the box? Yes, essentially. Close the box again, and the cat will go back to being alive and dead at the same time. You could, like, open the box really fast and... You know, like, when you try to open the fridge and um, close the fridge, by, but keep the light on? Like, you see how <laughs> how far you can close the fridge whilst the light stays on? So essentially, you can do that. Physics. <laughs> I forgot what we're talking about. Schrodinger's cat. Schrodinger's <laughs> fridge. It's Chris's fridge. <laughs> Honestly, all these physics things, there was, like... Because I liked physics at school, and I was considering, you know, when it's coming to choosing universities and stuff i was like like physics was like my best subject so i was like oh do physics and then i was like or engineering i ended up choosing engineering because like engineering is the bits of physics that for the most part you can sort of like visualize in your head like there'll be a load of maths and stuff behind it and like a lot of formulas that boggle your mind but like for the most part you can think like all right if i put a weight on the end of this the other end's gonna move and like you know it's like you know, you can, like, sort of visualise it. It's practical physics rather than, like, hypothetical. Yeah. And then it was looking yeah. at, like, this type of stuff they do at university in physics, and I was just like, my brain just melted. It's just, <laughs> it just like, right, we're going to talk about... <laughs> yeah. So all this maths really makes sense and proves that everything works out, like, to, like, you know, you can predict things with, like, mathematical certainty to whatever. But for it to work, we have to assume that there's also dimensions that you can't see. 
it's like, what? It's like, yeah, no, it works perfectly. What I find interesting about physics, particularly at school, is it's the only subject where they teach you one thing and then the next year they say, you know when we taught you that thing? Well, that's mm. not quite true. It's actually more like this. And then next year it's like, well, it's like that, but yeah. it's actually... It sort of doesn't quite work like that. It's not like in French, after after two years, they say, you know, all those irregular verbs. Well, it's not quite like that. It's more like this. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't keep like pulling the rug out un- under from you. It's like, it's not actually a chemise. It's more of a blouson. <laughs> and you're like, what? Because obviously, like most schools, we had teachers of varying quality. <laughs> like, the physics teacher... What a diplomatic way of saying that. <laughs> yeah. But like, the physics teacher I had at A-levels... He'd actually worked like, you know, because some th- teachers, you know, they literally went straight from like school to university, couldn't think of a job or something, and were like, oh, I'll just go back to school. And like, you ask them any question that isn't like written in the textbook, and they're like, nah, sorry. Like, but well, they won't ever say they don't know the answer, they can't answer, they just say, you don't need to know that or something like that. And he's yeah. just like, oh, wow, okay. Whereas this guy, he'd, um, He'd actually worked as like an astrophysicist in like, um, you know, like in uh, observatories and stuff like that. Like, I think he worked in South Africa or somewhere at some like high altitude observatory for ever many years. You know, so he'd like, he knew all this stuff. And sometimes he'd ask him a question or whatever and he'd be like, right, the answer you need to know is this. Memorize this answer. The real answer is this. And he'd go into some elaborate thing about like how, like, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Just, you know, how everything you think you know isn't real. <laughs> Something like that. But it'd be like... And this I- is this is why the universe is actually a snail on top of a turtle, <laughs> and it's turtles all the way down. And you're like, okay, so what's the answer to 2B? Yeah. And he's like, 7. But you show you're working. Yeah. Like, well, that's, what? <laughs> well, that's the thing, because he'd be like, he'd be like, whatever you do, do not write this answer down in the exam, because they'll say it's wrong. <laughs> like, this is the real answer, but it's far too complicated for, like, a level, <laughs> write down a five mark question. Yeah. yeah, you'd be like, just write down this, memorize this, and write it down in the exam. But the real answer is a lot more interesting. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, like, and then four massive like uh, chalkboards, like yeah. covered in like spirals and diagrams and yeah. like red tape connecting the things. It's like, on a, but on a subparticle level, and it's like, what? Yeah, and the answer is twelve. <laughs> If anybody asks, just say the answer's 12. And they know why. Like, they can't teach physics and stuff. Like, imagine if you went into your first lesson in, like, on electricity in year seven, and they were like, right, well. And then just, like, 18 pages of um, equations. <laughs> just like, I give up. It's a lot easier if they just yeah. go, like, electrons move around from here to here instantly. There you go. You turn the switch, it turns on. Light Shut bulb. up. <laughs> yeah. But didn't you get to uni to do aeronautical engineering and the first lesson is no one knows why planes work? Or yeah. There are at least competing theories of yeah. why planes work. Yeah, exactly. Like, There's not actually... What? I'm I'm 18 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a thing where you go to study a particular branch of science for that branch of science to say we don't actually know how it works. <laughs> like the theory that everyone gets taught is definitely wrong. <laughs> the theory that's usually taught to people in the simple thing is like planes have like, like the wings have a curved surface on the top and a straight line on the bottom. And the straight line's fast, shorter distance than the curve, which means that if a particle goes over the top and over the bottom, like they have, the one going over the top has to speed up so that it meets back at the other time. And remember, the electrode being like, 
I call this the cup of coffee theory because it, why, why would the particles need to meet up again? Like, do they have a coffee meetup scheduled? Why, why would it know that it needs to be there at the same time? And then there's like some other theories about it. And it's, yeah. And the ways you can explain it, which make the maths work and prove how it all works out, but don't actually explain why it's happening. How you can measure it and how you can like adapt it, but doesn't explain why. So yeah, competing theories. Whereas I got to uni and they didn't, like, I did Chinese and I didn't get that. And they go like, despite what you may have heard, China is actually an ancient Australian civilization <laughs> yeah. and they're just speaking English in a really funny accent. And it's like, um, <laughs> no, it's like, it's it's the thing you expect. Yeah. So here's a question. I, I read a thing once that said people don't know why bees can fly. Is that true? No, there's a thing with that. I'm not going to say definitively because I don't know the answer, but... Like, I'm not saying that the science is definitive on why bees can fly, but there's a common thing where, like, you know, there's a common thing saying bees shouldn't be able to fly. It defies all physics. But it's basically a bunch of calculations based on if bees were planes, which they're quite clearly... You know, it's like their wings aren't big enough to support their weight. And it's like, assuming that their wings were fixed horizontally and they had engines that powered them forward, they wouldn't make enough lift to fly, which... Obviously ignores the fact that bees flap their wings really fast. So I'm not going to say, because I don't know the answer, if how bees fly is definitively answered. But like the common, not meme, but you know what I mean? Like uh, It's a trope. Yeah. Common trope that the physics of bees don't make any sense. Or like bees flying don't make any sense. And that's been discredited because all the calculations that so, you know, apparently prove it assume that bees' wings work like a plane's wings when they clearly don't. Yeah, fuck them, they're only bees. <laughs> Who needs them? Turns out everybody. So I don't even eat honey, but I do like to breathe oxygen, and they help with that. Big fan of fruit and veg. Mostly spinach for you. Well, only by the kilo. Um, I realised we went off on a bit of a tangent there. Anything else on the actual topic itself of Schrodinger's Cat 2.0? Yeah, no, it's just that they've... Uh, that's all that this article the, goes into. It. But yeah, just that they... Schrodinger's cat thought experiment has been modified slightly according to uh, these science scientists. And and do you know where this is from? Dr. Zlatko Minev from Yale University, who's one who's the uh, the key author of the work. Although it does also have a team, but it doesn't say what their names are. It's a weird thing with um, like all these scientific experiments. Is like especially nowadays, almost every, but even going back, like almost all science is like. A team effort. But we still got this weird thing of only wanting to credit one person with stuff. You know, because there's always somebody who gets written out of history. Like, there's the people who found DNA, uh, you know, evidence of DNA. Like, before Crick and Watson. Yeah, here or, we go. Or, or Crick and Watson are the ones on the paper. Yeah, Crick and Watson are the ones that get the thingy. And then there's Rosalind Franklin, who was also key in finding it, but she's never credited with it. And you've all, And there's loads of ones where, like, throughout history, where, like, if it's like done in like a PhD dissertation thing, it's like the supervising lecturer or whatever gets the, I can't remember what the name is for it, but they're the ones that get the credit. Even if it was all their students that did like all the work, like they still get their name on it. And it's really weird, like, I don't know, it's really weird obsession with crediting just one person for it's like that great man theory of history, you know, like where history is written sort of from the perspective of a few great men did things rather than like millions of other people or contributing it's kind of like that it's like a weird obsession where like one person will get the get the credit even if it 
And I say it's always been that way, but especially now, it's so complicated. But like, yeah, if you were to make a discovery somewhere, one person might come up with the theory, then you'd have like 10 or writing the theory and expanding it. And then you'd have like hundreds and hundreds of people making like an experiment to make it work. And then they'll give the yeah. Nobel Prize to one person. <laughs> yeah, there you go. This is weird. Yeah. But anyway, that's me off my soapbox. No, it's a, it's a fine soapbox. Okay, so with that, we have wrapped up our odyssey of interesting and wonderful facts as promised we did take you from uh, science to history um hopefully we quite covered art but you know i mean i actually suppose we did cover art we talked about um, plato's wrestling and statues. wrestling is an art oh and the statues that's a more obvious link <laughs> <laughs> no, no no the way his his rippling uh delts flexed with oil is is as an art in it's itself true art. exactly so yeah no uh thank you for listening as ever Hopefully we've broadened your mind. I learned something. Did you learn something? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. We both learned something. What more do you want for a podcast? For free. (laughs) What more do you want? (laughs) I I think we're pretty good value for money, I'm just saying. (laughs) You've got to stop being so defensive with the (laughs) listeners who probably weren't feeling short-changed until you started... What what are you still here for? Fuck off. What do you want? (laughs) Well, I mean, apparently there's like a bit of a, um, you know, like within the, I've never actually seen it, ha- actually I think I've seen it once on uh, on Twitter, but there's like a bit of a um, stereotype of the indie podcaster getting annoyed that they haven't instantly become famous and basically then taking it out on their listeners for not paying enough attention. And it's just like, like oh, I don't know, just imagine that, just be like, how dare you not listen to me? We put so much effort into this. And it's like, well. I mean, we've brought out three whole episodes. Yeah, why are we not millionaires? Why? I mean, honestly, if any, um, if any generous benefactors do want to give us loads of money, then uh, let us know. In the... or even a l- little bit to our patron. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, we do have a patron. Doesn't and... have to be a a multi-millionaire benefactor. No. It could be a couple of quid our way. Yeah. Well, we do have a. We currently only have one tier on Patreon, and that's the uh, what do we call it. You're a saint. That's it. It's called the you're, the you're a Saint tier, and you just throw us $1 a month, and you get nothing in return. <laughs> Except the the bi-monthly podcast that you already receive yes. slash enjoy. Exactly. But you do get our gratitude. <laughs> yeah, we will put in 1% more effort. Yeah, and well, I mean, we do have a couple of uh, a couple of friends, Courtney and Henry, on that tier. Um, so, big thanks to them for... Uh, Keeping us going through these lean times. I mean, like I say, if anybody here does want to give us money, feel free and we'd greatly appreciate it. And we do want to become rich and famous enough to um, quit our day jobs and do this full time. But you know when people are like, oh, give us um, send us some money and it would really help us like improve the channel and stuff. It's like, how? <laughs> like, like, what are you buying with this money? <laughs> like, you already have the microphone. <laughs> you already have like... What 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 are you going to do that's going to actually like directly benefit from this money? Mm. So at least we're honest. That's the point. Cook and agree. We may not be the best, but we are honest. Put that on the poster. <laughs> what poster? I don't know. Why can't Spotify give us like a million dollar deal like they have with I say like they have with Joe Rogan? What is it? It's hundred million. Just give us some. Come on, Spotify. Cough up. <laughs> you start off by saying how ridiculous you find it, people being re- indignant for not giving them money, and then you just shouted, Spotify, cough up. 
<laughs> the entitlement. <laughs> <in it>. Oi! <laughs> He's got his. Where's mine? Yeah, where is mine? What's Joe Rogan got that we don't? Besides a massive fan base and like legions of celebrity guests. Tell you what, we have that he doesn't. Hair. Well, <laughs> you do. <laughs> I'm as bald as a peach. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah 50% of us has got one thing that Joe Rogan hasn't so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. you enjoy that 100 million from Spotify we'll comb our hair who's laughing now exactly not I and not our listeners no but on that note thank you for listening thank you for making it this far we're actually coming up to nearly two years doing this you know I realised the other day I think in yeah. September we will have done two years. We started recording, so obviously we, we built up a bit of a back catalogue before we launched. We started recording about this time two years ago. I think in April, two years ago in April, we um, came up with the concept, and I think it was about now. And I bought a microphone and we started recording, and then I think we launched in the start of September. So yeah. Wow, that's gone quick. Exactly. So maybe we'll do something special for episode 50. Because that should come out about two years in. Yeah, that's. I've got a few things in mind for... Because, uh, you know, 50 seems like... To do 50 of anything, mm. you know, 50 sit-ups, 50... Push-ups. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Just go through all the exercises. 50 bicep curls, 50 reverse bicep curls. <laughs> so, anyway, stay Six tuned minutes. for that. We should, we should say goodbye. Let's wrap this up. Yeah, so again, thank you for listening. Um, feel free to give us money if you want, but don't feel obliged, um, unless you're Spotify, in which case, cough up. Um, <laughs> and more importantly than that... Joe Rogan's bald. Yeah, yeah. But just more importantly than that, we really would like it if you uh, left a review on iTunes, because that just helps the channel to grow. Honestly, it doesn't even need to be a positive review. We'd prefer it if it was, but even negative reviews, I think, do actually... Um, Boost your visibility. Even a, a confusing review. Yeah. Just just like copy and paste the word, I don't know, Keish Lorraine 50 times. Yeah. It all counts. It all counts. So yeah, no, we'd really appreciate that. And we'd also like uh, if you uh, followed us on Twitter because we do like to interact with our fans. That's it, really. So again, thank you for listening. That's at Cooking With Grief, by the way. Oh yeah, no G on cooking. And it's goodbye from me. Yeah. Ciao. Adios. Auf Wiedersehen. Zeit hier. Au revoir. Uh, ciao. Sorry. Oh no! Have you no, already done said that? that. Done that one. Oh, Goodbye, mate. Sayonara. Ah, oh, damn. Yeah. Uh, no, you win. Ah, uh, yes. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody on the train, all aboard. You snooze, you lose. Buy my loot boxes. Not you. Get off the train. Don't let him on. Oh, okay. All right, listen here, Greenhorn. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about how to conduct a podcast. First thing you need to know is never stay on topic, ever. Uh, sir? What do you want? Uh, people are complaining about the Venom movie still. I don't care. Feed them Justice League or something. Get them off my back. Copy. But, sir, it says in the book that you need to stay on topic as a podcast. Screw the book, Greenhorn. The book was written by dinosaurs. Second thing you need to know is never report news that's not at least two or three weeks old. Uh, sir? What do you want? People are complaining about the Pokemon Go update. I don't care! Just gag them or something! Shut them up! On it. Uh, sir? What do you want, Greenhorn? 
I think the train might be going off the rails. That's exactly how we run this show. This is the Crazy Train of Thought podcast, brought to you by the Idiot Savants. Find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. www.crazytrainofthought.com